Oh, there we go. All right. Youth can be dismissed out there following Todd and Ben and crew. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, once you grab that, open up to the book of Psalms, Psalm 73 for this morning. Um, if you're not familiar, my name is Matt. I get the privilege of being one of the pastors and one of the elders here at uh, Cornerstone Church. Pastor Eric and his family are um, uh, out of town this weekend at a soccer tournament for one of his daughters, and so I get the, the privilege of being able to open God's Word uh, this morning and really looking at uh, one of these psalms that, uh, if you're familiar, can be a difficult psalm to, to read, because not because it's difficult to understand, but because it's, we understand the difficulty in which it is speaking about. But it's also a psalm, really, in which preaches itself. And so, for somebody like me who's not uh, preaching week in and week out, this is a helpful place to go because it's pretty simple to understand. Some of you may know the name Horatio Spafford. Um, And if you don't, then you will get to learn a little bit about this gentleman this morning. Born into a wealthy family, in 1828, became a lawyer uh, in Chicago, a very well-off real estate investor in uh, the city, the booming city at the time of Chicago. He was a faithful believer also. Uh, he was actually a, um, an elder uh, at uh, Fulton Presbyterian Church in Chicago. He was a friend and supporter of the evangelist D.L. Moody. Some of you may know that name. Horatio Spafford was one of his friends and a ministry companion in some sense. However, in 1871, October of 1871, as legend has it, somebody was milking a cow. um, And uh, early in the morning or late at night, cannot remember which one, but they had a lantern to see what was what they were supposed to be doing, as one would do. And the cow knocked over this lantern and started a fire. That fire spread from this farm to the city of Chicago and destroyed 17,000 buildings, 100,000 people homeless, 300 people dead, multiple millions or billions of dollars in damage. Of those buildings included uh, that were destroyed were all of Spafford's investments, including his law firm. Of course, then on the brink of financial ruin, Spafford's wife, Anna, suffered from multiple health issues. And so in an effort to allow her to get some rest and some recovery from these struggles, they planned a trip to England uh, to, to hopefully have her recover. And also on that trip to, to be a part of the ministry of D.L. Moody as he was traveling around at different uh, meetings, at, at preaching at all multiple places all over England and other places in Europe. And he, they were going to go to come alongside and minister with him. However, as they were about to, to leave in, 17, or in 1873, excuse me, um, some business matters came to his attention, and he could no longer attend with his wife and kids. We said, honey, you take the girls. Go on ahead. I'll meet you there in a few weeks. Unfortunately, as his wife and daughters were 
traveling <clears throat> on boat over the ocean. <clears throat> Another boat, which they still don't know what happened, collided and sank the ship, killing 226 of the 308 people on board, including Spafford's four daughters from ages nine down to two. His wife was rescued. She reaches Wales, telegraphs Horatio, and says, I alone survived. We'll leave the story there for the moment. We can look at countless examples from Scripture, countless examples from church history, to look at those who have suffered a lot. To look at those who have endured great trials and great tragedies. You can look at the life of Joseph. I mean, for decades, not knowing why he suffered in jail. Why he was almost murdered by his own brothers and thrown into a pit and sold into slavery and then was lied about and was in jail multiple times. Eventually he found out the purpose of God, but for decades he had no idea. We could also look at the life of the Apostle Paul and look at the number of beatings this guy got. He says, I was beat so many times I don't remember how, how many times that happened. That's a lot. The whippings he received, the shipwrecks, uh, the, the other persecutions he endured just because he was wanting to be faithful to Christ. You know, other men in church history like Charles Spurgeon, who was one of the most well-known preachers of his day, including today, but yet was kicked out of the Baptist denomination in part by his own brother because of his faithfulness to the Lord. Or maybe you can look at your own life. And you see the numerous trials, the struggles, the difficulties that you or your family have faced. And you might wonder, why? What is God doing? Or you might wonder, why does it seem like I'm the only one suffering? Or you may ask, this isn't, or you just may say, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. This isn't, maybe you're saying, you said before, God isn't being fair. I'm trying to follow him. I'm trying to obey his word. And yet all these difficult things happen. This isn't right. And if we're honest, we've probably thought that in our, in our lifetime. I know I've struggled with that. You're trying to be a faithful husband or wife. You're trying to be a faithful employee. You're trying to be a faithful student. You're trying to be a faithful believer. And yet hardship keeps happening. And those around you who don't love the Lord, those around you who are unbelievers... It seems like though their life blossoms. Their life seems easy. They're the ones who get the epic elk trophies. For those of you who are hunters, they don't have the the health issues. They don't have the financial struggles. They don't have maybe the constant chaos that it seems as though you may have. It seems as though maybe their, house, their life is perfect because they have the big house, they have the vacations, they have the raises, they have the cars, the whatever, you name it. And again, why is this? And, and really, that's what this psalm helps us to understand and really points us to and helps us to, to answer with great clarity of what is going on when, when it seems as though the righteous suffer and the unrighteous prosper. How are we to think through these issues? 
So follow along as I read Psalm 73 and Psalm chapter 73. A Psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the boastful, I saw the peace of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, and they are not stricken along with the rest of mankind. Therefore, lofty pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness, the delusions of their heart overflow. They scoff and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue goes throughout the earth. Therefore, his people return here to his place and waters of fullness are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease and have, they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and reproved every morning. If I had said, I will recount thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I gave thought to know this, it was trouble in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their end. Surely, you set them in slippery places. You cause them to fall to destruction. How they become desolate in a moment. They are completely swept away by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like an animal before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand, and your counsel will lead me, and afterward take me in glory. And whom have I in heaven but you? Beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish, and you have destroyed everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I've set, my, I've set the Lord Yahweh as my refuge, that I may recount all your works. It's the reading of the word of God. Again, as you may know, many of the Psalms were written by King David. This was not written by King David. How do you know that? Because it says a Psalm of Asaph. And this is really the start of what is known as book three of sort of five books of the Psalms, sort of compiled into five different sections, each section sort of having a different theme. Real, and, and most of the Psalms actually in book three are written by Asaph. And really they, what these Psalms do in this book to really, they, they, they give us a great picture of the goodness and the mercy of God in the midst of trouble and difficulty. They really help to point us to uh, the greatness and the nearness of God in our lives. Asaph was, he was appointed by King David as really the music leader, as the worship leader of Israel. The guy in the temple who led the music, that's who this guy was and he 
by God's grace was led to write many other psalms that we have for us today. As he writes here in Psalm 73, I mean, as you're just listening, as you're reading along, you can see the difficulty and the struggle of what he is seeking to answer. And so he's going through a difficult time. We don't know what that time was. We don't know the, really the occasion of this psalm, but whatever it was, there was some trouble. There was some unsettling in his hearts. And so what he's trying to do is to remind us of the sovereignty of God and help to set our minds on eternity, to focus on eternity when times are turbulent, when times are difficult. How do we need to think heavenly in times of tragedy and hardship? And you'll notice three different times in the psalm also, he, he uses the word surely. In verse one, surely God is good to Israel. In verse uh, 13, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. And then again in verse 18, surely you set them in slippery places. And what he's doing here with that word, how it's written uh, in, in the original language, is intended to really be guideposts. Or really, it's a natural outline for us to know what, what, what is he trying to say to us in, in that moment. Surely something. And then he explains it. And so really, that's our outline, because that's sort of the outline that God gave us through in, by his inspired word. I don't want to mess with that. So this is the outline that we'll have. So we're going to see just three responses. Three responses to set our hearts on eternity when life doesn't seem fair. Three responses that we see here in the Psalms to set our hearts on eternity when life doesn't seem fair. The first response is this in verse 1 through 12. The first response is that we are not to envy the life of the wicked. Don't envy the life of the wicked or the unbeliever. And Asaph starts out the psalm here, verse 1, the beginning part here, by giving us some helpful truths, some very simple yet very profound truths, and the fact that God is good. We hear that a lot. God is good, and that is true. It's really one of the most foundational and important truths about God that we focus on his goodness, on his character, on his love, that God cannot do anything that is not good. And not only is he good, it says he is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That God is good to all mankind in the sense of we have rain. That's God's goodness that there's rain to water the earth, to give us produce from that, to feed the animals, to give us water to drink and to enjoy. That's good. But then there's a special goodness of God to his people, to Israel, and today to the church. To those who are pure in heart, meaning those who are saved, those who have been purified from sin by the grace of God. There's a special goodness to his people, to those whom he has saved. And for for Asaph and for us, we know this truth. We are reminded of this truth. We see this truth daily as we wake up and and we can think and reason and enjoy things and have a roof over our heads and we open this thing that's cold and has food inside that isn't rotten because, you know, we, we have all these great conveniences. So God is good to us. But yet there's a special goodness, again, to his people. But yet, as Asaph then follows on in verse 2, and even for us, 
in times of difficulty, we, we might forget that. We might know God's goodness and see God's goodness, but then he says, verse 2, but as for me, my feet almost stumbled and my steps almost slipped. I mean, look, I know in my heart God is good, but my thoughts and my actions are leading me away from that truth. My thoughts and my actions and the circumstances of life are leading me to fall and to doubt those things maybe. To be crushed under the weight of these difficulties. And really, what was that difficulty that Asaph was facing? The envy of the life of the unbeliever. The envy of the world. The envy of what he says here, the wicked. Those who deny Christ or those who mock God as we see later. What caused him to slip was envying and being jealous of what he didn't have from those who seem to have it all. And to Asaph, the, the life of the, unbel- of the unbeliever looked easy compared to his own. Again, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, even today we can look at the world around us. We can look at the celebrities, the politicians, maybe friends or family, neighbors, whoever. Employers, employees who don't love Christ, but their lives seem to be easy compared to yours in the sense of the amount of difficulties and tribulations you may be facing. Again, maybe you're seeing these things incorrectly as Asaph did for a time. And he describes, this is what I saw. This is how I was thinking. This is what I was envious of. In verse 4, there's no pain in their death. Look, the, 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 when they die, it seems to be easier and better than the believer. They just peacefully go to sleep and then they die. There's no agony. There's no pain. There's nothing there. There's no sorrow. There's no weeping and mourning. That's what he's perceiving. He also says again, verse four and later on verse seven, their body is fat, their eyes are fat, meaning they don't lack anything. They have the abundance of food. They've never gone hungry. Their grocery carts are full from Whole Foods with all the things you can ever afford because it's so expensive, right? Uh, They have an overabundance of things. They have an abundance of wealth is the idea. Verse 5, again, they're, they're, they're not in trouble as other men. They're not stricken. Like just their whole life is just easy. They don't have these tribulations. They don't have the health problems, the health struggles, the difficulties with kids or with cars or with house or you name it. And they have an abundance of things and yet they mock God, verse 6, lofty pride is their necklace. They're clothed in just arrogance and violence and like, I'm awesome. I'm God. I don't need God because I am him. Look at what I've done. Look at how, look at what I've made. Look at this kingdom I've built. Look at this majestic life that I have. I've arrived. I have a house in Jackson Hole and I give to nonprofits. Look at me. You might mock but you know those people. And they look at their lives and they just see, I have arrived. They boast of their own wisdom. They boast of their own knowledge. They boast of the things that they think they have created by denying God, verse 8 through 
9 and 10. Again, they scoff. Oh, I, I don't need God. I don't need religion. I don't need that. Look at what all these other things I've made. Verse 9, just the worldly wisdom that they have created. Here's how I've done life. The success that I have, it's got me here. And so if you just follow my steps, you follow my 10 easy steps to success and buy my book and listen to my podcast, then you will have what I have. And then verse 10 what they're saying and what they're promoting is they're swaying God's people. His people, meaning this, the people of the Lord are being drawn in and they're, they're drinking the, the waters of this worldly wisdom is the idea. The, 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 the people of God are seeing the prosperity of the unrighteous and they're noticing as well how their life looks great. And so they want what they want that. And they're being easily swayed and drinking in, proverbially speaking there, that worldly advice, that worldly wisdom. And molding and changing their life to match that so they can get what they see. And the eye of the unbeliever then is really, it's blind to the reality of their life. But again, they mock God and said, how does God know? I, I mean, yeah, I know God's out there in Romans 1 and stuff, and I know there's a God, but he, he, he can't see anything. He can't know anything. He doesn't know my own heart, and, and it's not a big deal. You guys, maybe you guys tell me about God and coming judgment and these things. Yeah, right. This isn't happening. God must be sleeping because he can't see me and I mock him, and he doesn't punish me. So you're wrong. But really, they're blind to that, as we will see. But again, you can see the appeal. As Asaph is saying, verse 12, these are the wicked, always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Of, there, there's, this is a problem. There's an issue here that's hard to understand because God promises in, in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. His life should be blessed, but the unbeliever here seems he's the one who's blessed and he's the wicked guy. I don't understand, God. What's going on here? We see the difficulty that he is going through that maybe you even see in your own life. But again, as, we're, as we'll see in just a minute, this isn't true. This is external. The life of, of this person is external. Not all unbelievers' lives are comfortable. Not all of them are at ease. Some are, but for temporary at ease. They're not fully at ease for their entire life. On the outside, they might seem happy, but their lives are miserable. You might see the mansions in Beverly Hills or Hollywood, which you ever go, uh, I mean, you think Hollywood's great. It's a slum. It, it's, it, you don't want to go there. Um, Beverly Hills is cooler. That's where all the mansions are. But you see these mansions and you think, oh, it'd be so great to live there. But inside, I mean, it's just misery. Every day on the news, probably, I don't really know anymore. Uh, but uh, so-and-so's getting divorced. Why do I know? Why, why should I care? Their lives are miserable, though. Even though they seemingly have it all. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is, I wish we'd go through this whole section here, but for sake of time, we, we can't. Maybe we'll later at a different, on a different sermon, but... 
Solomon says this, I've said in my heart, come now, I will test you with gladness, meaning I'll test my heart with gladness so that you shall see good things. And behold, it was too, it, it too was vanity. Verse two, I said of laughter, it is madness or insanity. Oh man, I wish we'd go into the detail of what that means. And of gladness, what does it do? So what Solomon's say, saying here, and he, he goes through the next 10 or so verses of saying, here's how I was looking for laughter. Here's how I was looking for the pleasures of this life. I did everything. Building projects, uh, prostitutes, recreation, vacations, pleasure of unimaginable kinds, more than anyone else, and I was miserable. He says it was insanity. It was pointless. All that the world seeks for, for, for fulfillment never satisfies them. And that's what Solomon says is madness. The constant seeking after the pleasures and the relief from the despairs of life from the unbelieving world is insanity. But as we look into the world outside of us, and if we're not careful, we can become envious of what we see without thinking rightly, without thinking biblically. Maybe we think if I just had that house, if I just had that car, if I just had that job, if I just had this thing, if I had that relationship, then my life would be fulfilled. Then my life would be happy. But again, as the psalmist here and as God here wants us to see that we can't place hope in temporary things. We can't place our hope in the temporary pleasures and success of the world. We have to place our hope in something more heavenly minded. We have to place our hope a little higher up. And we have to think rightly about these things, not allow our mind to wander off into these errors. And so that leads us to our second response here that we are to have. Secondly, we see there in verse 13 that we need to be aware of those wrong thoughts. We need to be aware of the sinful thinking that is going on maybe in our heart and in our mind. Again, verse 13 starts out, surely in vain. Again, intended to have to direct our thoughts of a new idea, a new heading. This is the unbiblical, ungodly way to think about what I just said. Verse 13, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. <laughs> I have been stricken all day long and reproved every morning. He's saying being godly was, I mean, when I think this way, when I'm envying the wicked, when, I'm, when I see what they have and what I don't have, it, uh, I look at my life and think this is pointless. Following God and doing a Bible studies and, and going to church, that was, what's the point of that? I've been pure in vain, he says, because I'm not enjoying these things. I'm not obtaining these things. He doesn't feel blessed. Again, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He's saying that was, that's not true. I mean, that, it is true, but for his sake and his mind, he's saying this isn't true. Okay, maybe you're tempted in the same way. I'm following God, but I'm still not married. And I want to be. I'm following God, and I still don't have kids, and I want them. I'm following God, and it seems just that every hardship, one after another, I'm being passed up for, for the promotions of work by those who lie and cheat and steal from the company. Why are they promoted and I'm not? The relationships you have 
that you've worked hard on are gone because of your faithful stance with the gospel. You might be tempted to think this is it's pointless because everything is, seems to be gone. Again, no matter how hard you try to fear the Lord and obey his word to defend God, it, it seems as though things just get harder. Again, if we're honest, we, we have probably all struggled like this in some way. Maybe even now. You're tempted to think, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to prioritize time of the word and prayer. I don't have time for that. I got to like work. I got to do stuff. I got to like make money. So I don't have time for Jesus. Because that's what everyone else does. Also notice verse 15. Another wrong, some, uh, some other helpful clarifying things here in the sense of how do we correct our wrong thinking. He says this, if I, will, if I had said, I will recount thus, behold, I have greatly betrayed the generation of children. What's going on there? It kind of seems odd. That's sort of a weird way to say that. He says, look, while I was struggling with these doubts, while I was struggling with, this, with, with the thoughts of the envy of the wicked and thinking that being godly is pointless, if I had said that out loud, that would have been damaging to people around me. If I would have proclaimed my doubts, if I would have tweeted my doubts, if I would have Facebooked or whatever you say, my doubts, if I would have posted those struggles, if I would have said, this is hard and pointless and what the heck, God, why is this going on and this isn't fair? If I would have said these things publicly, it would have destroyed and betrayed and damaged the godly around me. Again, he's the worship leader. He's a guy with some influence and some means. It doesn't mean that if you don't have influence and means, or really influence, then you don't need, then you can say whatever you want. That's not the point here. The point is maybe sometimes we need to keep our mouth shut and not say everything that's in our heart and in our mind. Again, in, in today's world, we say everything and we probably don't need to. We shouldn't. Sometimes with our doubts and struggles, there are certain people we should talk to, pastors and you know, those who are some trusted friends. But just proclaiming them to everybody, maybe we need to be a little cautious with that. And be aware of these things. And he, and he says in verse 11, uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 16, when I gave thought to know this, it was trouble in my sight, meaning it shook me. These wrong thoughts of the envy and like, what's the point of being godly? That shook me. That troubled me. That should startle us if we think that way. It should startle me. Oh, this is so hard. Why should I do this? It should startle me. Like, what the heck? What am I thinking? That's wrong. He didn't want to, nor should we want to be a source for the believers around us in the church to walk away from the truth. We don't want to be a source of causing doubt to be born in the heart of somebody that we love. We don't want to be the source, really, of causing somebody to think, you're right, God isn't fair. You're right, this is hard. This isn't right. God's being, he's not being kind to me. This isn't okay. 
We don't want to be that source. We don't, we don't want to be that person and betray God and betray those around us. We don't want to be the cause for somebody to have these sinful thoughts and sinful doubts that are going to lead them away from meditating and relying and, and basing their faith on the word of God. And saying, well, if that's not true, if God really isn't good, then this must not be true. So I don't need to listen to it. There must be a different way. There must be a better way like the world is saying because this is too hard. We do not want to be a source for spreading doubts that God is unfair or God is somehow unjust or God is somehow unloving and he is not really that good. Charles Spurgeon said of this, of this verse, where we have any suspicion of being wrong, meaning like maybe this thought is wrong. Maybe, I'm, maybe this thought that I'm thinking of the envy and envying what my neighbor has and all these other things, maybe I'm wrong. Well, I should, I should still say something. He's like, no, maybe you should just not. He says, where there's any suspicion of being wrong, it's better to be silent. There's no harm to be quiet. And it may do serious damage to spread abroad our hastily formed opinions. Expressions which convey the impression that the Lord acts unjustly or unkindly, especially if they fall from the lips of men of known character and experience, are as dangerous as firebrands among stubble. Meaning, any sort of thought, any sort of expression that conveys that God is not good and not kind and not loving is seriously damaging, especially from those who are in some form of leadership. A pastor a music leader, a GC leader, a parent. Some of your discipling. These thoughts should alarm us rather than cause us to think, oh, maybe I'm right. They should alarm us from the, the, the idea of maybe I'm envying things and I need to repent of that. I need to, to not think this way. But then how, how did Asaph go from thinking wrongly like, oh, this was vain to be pure. This was vain to like follow God. How did he go from that to what we see in verse 18 through 28? How did he go from there? Verse 17. He went to church. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. Look, he's saying, I was envious of the wicked I had these wrong thoughts that like being godly is pointless and this is hard until I went to church and was reminded of the truth and I was reminded of the end of the life of the wicked and what will happen to them. He was struggling with fighting the doubts about his faith and about God until he came to worship God with God's people. The sanctuary of God there refers to the temple where they would go as the people of God to worship together corporately, together uh, as God's people to offer sacrifices and praises to the Lord. That's where they would sing praises to him. Singing songs to Jesus is not a new idea. This was, this was started uh, by God. Uh, and that's the psalm book, the psalms, 150 inspired psalms or songs of singing praises to God. That's what they would do in the temple. And that's what we, are, that's what we do here. They would come to hear not only the singing of, of these psalms, but then the preaching of the word. They would preach to each other or somebody would preach to them. Right? Today we don't go to the temple or to the sanctuary. We go to, we go to church. 
people like to say, well, we don't go to church, we are the church. Yeah, but no. Okay. Yes, we are the church, but we can't just be the church and, and you know, be at home on our couch. We, we're, we're, we're the church, so what do we do? We go together, together in a soccer field, right? We, we come together. But how does going to church help us to have some eternal perspective that's weird? Other places we could go just for, for, for looking at this, but briefly, uh, turn in your Bibles actually to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. Let's just look there. I want you to see this. <clears throat> right before James. The book of Hebrews is a, is a sermon <clears throat> based off of a few Psalms. Psalm 95 is one of them. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10, and really ten, chapter 10 is sort of a, a turning point for the book, sort of now at, this is the application section of the sermon. Uh, verse 19 starts that, therefore, all of chapter 1 through 10 is sort of the theology, the exposition, and then chapter uh, 10, verse 19 through the end of the book is the application. But he says here in verse, uh, let's just look at verse um, uh, 22. And let us draw near with a sincere heart. Draw near where? To the, to the throne of God as we're together and got with God's people. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It reminds us of verse 1 of Psalm 73 here. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful. And let us consider then, verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you flip over just a few pages to chapter 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers, that there not be in any in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. How? By encouraging one another day after day, as long as, this, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We come together as God's people on Sundays and midweeks and whatever we're, whatever we're meeting together, but primarily on Sundays as we assent with the preaching and the hearing of God's word and singing songs together, we come to hear God's word so that we're not hardened by our own sin. That we're not given into the foolishness of our own thoughts thinking maybe God is unkind. Maybe this is too hard. Maybe this is too much. and Maybe God's mean. We come together to be reminded that's a wrong thought and I need to repent. I need to think rightly about God. When we isolate ourselves and we neglect the church, we neglect the people of God, we tend to let our minds wander and we focus on falsehood. We focus on social media. We focus on maybe what other believers and other, other areas are saying, but, are prob- it's, but it's wrong. We don't have the voices of other people in the church helping us to think biblically. We get stuck in our own thoughts. We don't have the word of God being brought to us so that we're not hardened by our own sin. As we gather as the people of God, we're reminded about his goodness. We're reminded about his love through the fellowship of one another, through the singing of songs. As we're singing to one another, as we're singing praises to God, Ephesians 4 says, or Ephesians 5, we're also singing to one another to, be, to remind ourselves of this truth. And we are reminded of these truths by the preaching of the word of God, by the proclamation of truth from his word. 
Our hearts should be filled with joy because we not just show up to church to, to show up, but we come to be renewed, to be reminded of the love of God, the sovereignty of God, the care of God, the goodness of God, no matter what is going on in my life. We sing that song earlier. Um, what was the first song we sang, Neil? Grades of Faithfulness. Uh, thank you. Jeez, I should know that. Grades of Faithfulness. If you know that his, like, if you know where that psalm comes from, that song comes from, Lamentations 3. Lamentations chapter 1 through halfway through chapter 3 is all misery and despair and destruction and Israel's falling apart and the, the, the Babylonians are coming and everyone's dying. Oh, this is miserable. And then he says in chapter 3, great is your faithfulness. I need that song. We need that song. We need these words to be sung into our hearts so that we are reminded of the goodness and faithfulness of God. Sort of a side note, this is why singing good songs is important, not just listening to whatever's on the radio. Because sometimes songs on the radio give us bad theology and inappropriate and wrong thoughts about God. I'll get off my soapbox now. I, look, I might, not be no, I might not know what God's doing in my life. You might not know what God is fully doing in your life. And until we get to heaven, we probably won't know everything. Job didn't know until he wrote the book of Job. Joseph didn't know until uh, 20 years after. Even then, he didn't fully understand and grasp everything. We might not fully know what God is doing, but we know that he is good. We have to believe the promises of God. Romans 8.28, Eric will get there probably in about two, you know, three months or so. We're, we're what, verse 10? Romans 8.10? So we'll be at verse 28 later. But we know that God is good and does things for our good. We have to believe these things and we have to put off those wrong thoughts of this is pointless and too hard. And I might as well just give up being godly. Well, third and last, how do we develop this internal mindset of, uh, or, or sorry, this, the mindset of thinking eternally when times are tough Number one, we don't envy the wicked. We, we're, we are aware of our wrong thoughts. And then third, we need to deepen our devotion to God. Third, deepen your devotion to God. Verse 18 through 28. To move through this a little faster than I, I, I want. But, uh, <clears throat> I mean, we could spend weeks on this. There's so many things. You're probably like, oh, why didn't you say this? There's so much here, but... You know, I can't preach for two hours this morning. Um, verse 18. Surely again. He says, surely. Again, to direct your minds on this truth. A new thought here. A new idea. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You've caused them to fall to destruction. Again, ver we go back up to, um, right, right up there, uh, verse 17, excuse me. I came to the sanctuary of God that I understood their end. The end of what? The end of the unbeliever, the end of the wicked. You will, verse 18, you will set them in slippery places. When I think about the unbeliever, I can't think of the envious things, of things I want, what they have that I don't have, and how their life seems great. I need to be thinking about the judgment of God. That if they don't repent, they will face God's judgment. And they, God will cause them to slip and to fall into that. God will cause her foot to slip into his judgment, into his wrath. Uh, while it may seem as though God is asleep to them, even verse 19 and 20, God 
well, proverbially, it's sort of the idea of, of wake up and destroy them. And God's not sleeping. He's just, the idea of like a dream, when, when one awakes, God will, dis, God will deal with you in due time. God will deal with you. God will correct all the injustices of the wrongdoing. God will correct all the injustices of the wicked. God will punish everyone who's not bowed the knee to him in faith. What does this have to do with being, dev- of having a greater devotion for God? If you're saved, praise the Lord that this is no longer you. Praise the Lord that he has saved you from this. Thank him and praise him for this wonderful truth. And maybe this is you. Maybe you need to repent. And maybe you need to look back in your life and think, man, I, I, I've just been mocking God. I've been, I've been stiff-arming him. And, and I, I, I will fall into this terror. Verse 19. Are you mocking God by your life, a false profession of faith? Are you mocking God by saying, look at what I've done, look what I've achieved? Are you mocking God by sinning and saying, no one knows and God doesn't care and he hasn't punished me yet, so what's the point? No, I mean, who cares? God won't, God, God loves me and God forgives me. I'll sin and God, I'll just ask God forgiveness and he'll forgive me, so no big deal. That is mocking God and he says, you will slip. As Asaph said, I almost fell. I almost was washed away. The wicked will be fully and finally. This is just, this is a warning. And if you're saved, this is what causes us to marvel and to, 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 to praise the Lord for his goodness to redeem sinners, to redeem the wicked. Causes us to praise him because we think about how we used to live, how we used to think. Verse 21, when my heart was embittered, I was pierced within. I was senseless and ignorant. I was like an animal. Again, Asaph is saying, when, when I look back and I thought how I, I look back and think how I thought, like I was envious of those things and how I thought God isn't fair and God's mean, I, I realized I was just so convicted. I was pierced to the heart. I was so broken over my sin and I, I was realized I just acted like a dumb animal, like a dumb ox. Or a stubborn mule, as David says in Psalm 32. When we forget the goodness and love of God, it's, we should be convicted of that and like, man, God, how should I do that? Why should I do that? Because of your goodness to me, your love for me, your kindness to me, I shouldn't doubt you. I shouldn't ignore you. You know, there's no virtue in casting doubt, as many claim today in Christianity, so-called Christianity of, oh, it's good to doubt. And, no, it's not. We should be convicted of those things and say, how dare I do that? And while we, are, while we will struggle with those things from time to time and battle them, we need to battle them. While we may doubt God's goodness from time to time because we're still sinful and not yet perfect, we need to not just allow those thoughts to wander. We need to be pierced to the heart. We need to be convicted of those things. We need to battle those thoughts. And one of those truths that we need to put on instead is what we see in verse 
23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. I've taken, you have taken hold of my right hand. One of these great truths that we need to be reminded of is that God is the one who's sustaining me in my trial. God is the one who sustains me in my difficulty. God's the one who sustains me even in my doubts and my fears. Not that God, or sorry, now that Asaph was holding on to God, he says, God is holding on to me. I am continually with you, not because of anything Asaph did, but because he realizes I'm with God, or God's with me, because of he's holding me. He's got me. If left to ourselves, as we saw earlier, Asaph would have just caved in and given over to his envy and despair. Given over to ourselves, left to ourselves, that's how we would respond. But if it, if it were not for the mercy and the goodness and the kindness of God, the sovereignty of God caring for us in these times and walking with us, no matter what may be going on. And verse 24, his counsel leads me. The counsel of his word of God leads me how to respond, how to think, how to behave, how to feel. God's word tells us how to feel. Our hearts don't tell us that. Our hearts are deceitful. But God's word tells us how to feel. Not based off our circumstances, based off of his truth. Can you... God's word tells us how to live and how to behave. He says, your, your counsel leads me and eventually you'll take me into glory. One day I will be with you in heaven, he says. These are the truths we're going to be thinking of rather than how hard things are and how difficult things are and how I don't have this, how, don't I, how I don't have that. I can't envy those things. I need to be reminded of God's kindness, the salvation of me, his sovereign love and salvation, his sustaining grace, his never-ending mercy and love overpowers this seemingly never-ending trial. That the true joy and delight of my life comes from Christ, verse 25, whom I am in heaven but you. Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. That is hard to say. That's hard to say. But he says, whom who have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth. I, I don't care about the, the cars, the, the house, the, 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 the food, the whatever. I don't, he says, I don't care about any of that. I desire you. My heart, my flesh, my fail, but God is the rock in my heart, of my heart and my portion forever. I don't need those things that, that the wicked have because one day that'll be gone. They can't take it with them. One day I will be in heaven though. And all the, the moments I'm suffering now, it's temporary. As you see in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, look, the, moment, the, the momentary light affliction is nothing in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. In verse 27, he says this, for behold, those who are far from you will perish, those whom you destroyed or the oldest right one who's unfaithful to you. Again, just being reminded here, sort, sort of summing things up here. God is, that God is good. God, is, God loves us. God is kind. And yet those who reject him will be judged. And we realize again that our devotion to God is just being deepened. We don't deserve this. I, 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 I marvel because I don't deserve this. I should be among those who are perishing. I should be among those who are destroyed. But God has seen in his infinite wisdom and mercy to save some, some of us, to save me. Why? I don't know. Because he's loving. We all deserve judgment. We all deserve punishment. But Christ, being God 
and yet being man came to earth because we, we could not save ourselves. We could not redeem ourselves. We could not come to Christ and we could not come to God on our own. So Christ had to come to live that perfect sinless life that we could never live. He fulfilled perfectly the law of God on my behalf. He substituted himself for me, excuse me, on the cross, taking my sin and my shame upon himself on that cross, bearing that weight of guilt, bearing that weight of sin and shame, enduring everything that if we could, you know, if we die and, 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 and we go to hell, we will never, ever pay off our sin, ever. A million years in hell is 0% of the payment paid. I mean, imagine going to your mortgage, uh, you know, to the bank paying off your mortgage and every, every month you put in check in and realize, oh, there's zero, the balance has not changed. In fact, it's increased. That would be really discouraging. It, it's, it's, this is how it is with eternity. You can never, ever, 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 if I can say that never enough more, you know, uh, enough ever is there, I guess. <clears throat> you can never pay off your sin. A million years, a billion years, or whatever comes after that can never pay off your sin, but Jesus paid it in three hours. Because of his perfect life, he endured that wrath that we could never fully endure. He did that so that we can be with him in glory. Verse 24. He took that payment. And how do we receive that? By faith. Not by works. Not by doing anything. By faith. By believing in him. By, by, by believing that he is the only way. That he is good. That he is our only desire. That he is our only rock. Verse 26. That because of Christ and what he's done, no matter what happens in this life, I will not be shaken and moved. Verse 28, that God is my refuge, that Christ is my refuge, that I realize that he and his nearness is my good. <clears throat> not these things, <clears throat> not this material wealth, or not anything is my good. Christ is my good. God is my good. His nearness meaning that he is with me. He is near me. He is, really, the word Emmanuel for Jesus, it means God with us. He is in me. That God's closeness is with me when I'm meditating upon his word as we're gathering together as his people, as his church, that the things of the world no longer are attracted to me, but the thing that is, is God. The end of verse 28, he says this, that I may recount all of your works, just briefly here. As we see what God's done to us, we proclaim it to other people. It's just as Asaph said earlier, look, I, I don't want to say anything that's going to cast doubt upon God's people, so I'm going to shut my mouth here. I'm proclaiming the goodness of God here. I'm proclaiming the mercy of God here. I'm proclaiming what God has done. Yeah, life is difficult. We're, it's full of tribulation, full of trouble, full of hardship. That it, it seems like God's doing some hard things here, but the reality is that God is still good, and he's using this for my maturity. He's using this for my growth. He's using this for my good, no matter what, whether I know it or not. I'm proclaiming that truth. I'm declaring that truth. You even do that as you're going through trials. People around you, coworkers, friends, family may see what you are doing and how you're responding and wonder why are you doing that? How are you doing that? And it's an opportunity for the gospel, for evangelism. 
It's an opportunity for you to come along and disciple somebody else who is struggling and suffering in ways and maybe you have suffered before for you to show them, I'm so sorry this is hard. I, I, I wish I could take it away, but I can't. But God is still good and he is, he is with you. He is near you no matter what. For those of you who are familiar with the rest of the story of Horatio Spafford, as I mentioned in the beginning, you're familiar with this, that uh, you know, the death of the, his daughters is not the end. After he receives the news, he gets on a boat and heads over to Wales and England to be with his grieving wife. On the way over, the captain of the ship points out and says, Horatio, this is where your daughters were killed. This is where they drowned. This is where the boat crashed right here. As he's looking out over the ocean and the waves crashing against the boat, he begins to write the hymn, It is well with my soul. When tragedy struck, it seemed like this, this trial after trial was upon him. His heart, though, was pointed to Scripture and the reality and the promises of God that God is with me and it is well with my soul no matter what happens because God is my refuge. His nearness is my good. Where might you be today, friends? Are you tempted to respond more like Asaph from the beginning of, this isn't fair. I wish I had this, and this is pointless. Or do you need to respond more of, like he does here, of, I don't understand everything, but God is good. The nearness of God is my good. Suffering is one of those things that nobody enjoys, nobody loves, but it's the thing God often uses to restore our hearts to that reality, to draw our hearts off of the temporary, off of the circumstantial, and onto him, onto the eternal things of life, not envying the wicked, being convicted of our wrong and sinful thoughts, and growing in our greater devotion to him. Well, as we do... Once a month, we, we, we partake in what is known as the Lord's Table, Communion, the Lord's Supper. And we do so as sort of like the psalm as, as a reminder of God's goodness, a reminder of God's faithfulness, a reminder of God's truth that salvation is not by works. Salvation is not by me doing things. Salvation is by grace alone and Christ alone, by his life and his death. The cup represents his blood, the life that was shed on the cross. The, 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 the cracker, the wafer there. This is not a wafer. It's a, it's a cracker. It's gl- gluten. We have gluten-free options. Um, that represents his body that was broken for us, beaten for us, that was crushed for us on the cross. Again, there's no magic in these things. As I mentioned, it's a cracker. And it's grape juice, not wine. It's grape juice. Uh, there's nothing special about these in the in magical sense. If I take this, I will be healed of something or I will be saved. We do this as a reminder, as a way of reminding ourselves of the sacrifice of Christ for us. And we do so because Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. It's an institution he gave to us or something he instituted. Uh, Last week we saw baptism. This week we're, we're doing communion because this is one of the things the Lord has said. When you gather, do this. Be reminded of my sacrifice be reminded of the good news of Christ crucified, that Christ did not stay dead, but he arose from the dead, conquering sin and death, so that we may place our faith and our hope in him and then be with him for all of eternity when we die. As the band comes up here in just a minute, <clears throat> take a few moments to pray in your heart. Consider 
any sin, consider the doubts, consider the envy that may be in your heart, the wrong thinking in your heart about God and, and his, the trials that he has sovereignly put you through. Think about Christ and his sacrifice for us and the gratitude that we ought to have. When you're ready, you can come up and take the elements and sit back, come, go back to your seat and, and we'll all lead us and we'll partake together. But if you're not ready to be saved, if you're not a believer, just sit in your seat. Don't come up. Don't worry about it. Uh, we don't want to take these elements unworthily. Paul, Paul warns us of that. And if you are a believer, but yet you still have bitterness and hatred and sin and un, unresolved conflicts and unresolved relationships in your life that you are unwilling to deal with, unwilling to, uh, to, to repent of and forsake and to seek to resolve, and just pray. Don't come and take this unworthily either, if that's you. But you can pray. You can ask God to forgive you. You can ask God to help you. Uh, if you're an unbeliever, you can ask God to save you and come and partake of this together w- with us and to, um, to participate in the joyous celebration of the reminder of the cross, reminder of the gospel. The musicians will come up and play. So again, just take a few minutes and pray. Um, as you're ready, come up and grab a cup and cracker, gluten-free if you need, if you need that, and go back to your seat, and then I'll lead us in just a few moments.